The Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. So we are catching up with Paul and Silas in Philippi. Last week we had the reading of their meeting Lydia. Um, At first, Paul didn't think that they would be going that far east. Uh, but after a dream is, uh, decides that that is actually where the Spirit is calling them. So if you look at Greece and travel the East Coast all the way up to where it starts to turn, Philippi is sort of in that corner. Um, and last week we heard that he had arrived in the city uh, with his followers. They had already picked up Timothy along the way and had arrived in the city and on the Sabbath had found a tree sort of outside the city gates um, where they assumed was a gathering place for prayer, and indeed it was, uh, for women. And so they found the women there praying and got to talking to them uh, because that's what they did and visited. And through that, Lydia was converted. Um, I love the detail given about her that she traded in fine purple cloth. Isn't that a wonderful detail? I just love that, you know? Uh, What that says to us, purple cloth was very expensive. What that says to us is she was a woman of means and had her own business. And so when she asked them to come and reside with her, uh, they accept. So they are guests in Philippi of Lydia, uh, who becomes very much a cornerstone of that community, that Christian community there. But Philippi is a Roman city, a very Roman city, about as Roman as Rome is. Uh, So um, Augustus and Antony uh, uh, defeated or or chased after the um, assassins of Julius Caesar there and had a battle there. So that's how Roman it is. Uh, Very Roman city and lots of Roman culture and and commitment to that, which begins to help us understand the story that where we're we're meeting up with it now. Um, And this is a rich story. There's so much happening here and many threads that we could tease out. So I hope that you will take the story and chew on it a bit this week because there's, there's just so much to it. Uh, so Paul and Silas are walking around, doing their thing, spreading the good news, and this slave girl who has 
a spirit of divination, it doesn't say it's a demon. It just says it's a spirit of divination. Uh, and, uh, and so they, she starts following them um, and quite clearly sees them for who they are. That's the gift of her sight and starts to say, she words it as that they are slaves pretty much of Christ. Um, in other words, they have given their whole lives and are wholly committed to preaching the word and the gospel of this person um, and God through this person. And she's following them around for several days. And this is where the humor comes in the story. Uh, Paul casts out the spirit because he's sick and tired of hearing her. <laughs> There's no other good reason for it. That's, what's, that's what I love it. It doesn't say, Paul overcome with the burden this young woman was carrying and wanting to set her free from her demon. No, none of that. Just he was annoyed and got rid of the spirit. <laughs> In sort of the southern way of thinking about it, I think about him walking around saying, good Lord, won't you just get rid of that spirit? She's driving me crazy. <laughs> Sure enough, the spirit leaves the spirit girl, I mean the servant girl. Of course, her owners are none too happy about this. They were making a buck on her. Of course they were. Um, that would be human nature. You have a slave who has uh, such a, a gift, you want to exploit it. They were. They were not happy when this uh, gift of hers disappeared. And so they went and complained to the magistrate who... In my mind, I picture sort of saying, oh, Lord, just throw them in jail. These are just Jews from out of town. They're, they're foreigners. Just throw them in jail. Put them someplace safe so that the, the, you know, the wealthy person in town will get off my back because they're driving me crazy. Lots of good reasoning for all of this. Uh, and so they put them in jail. And Paul and Silas do as they do and took advantage of the time to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the prisoners there. Uh, now, it says that there's an earthquake. We don't know what causes the earthquake. It doesn't say specifically that the Holy Spirit shook the ground. It doesn't say that God himself uh, caused it to happen. It just says that an earthquake in the middle of the night kind of opened the prison and loosed their chains. Now, that does recommend that there might be a little bit of God involved in it. Of course, the insurance companies nowadays would call it an act of God, so maybe they're right. I don't know. <laughs> so by an act of God, there is, uh, they are set free, and the jailer comes out, wakes up, bless him, having a good night's sleep uh, the the earthquake wakes the jailer and he rushes in and now we might read the story and say goodness he is so melodramatic to want not even check the prison first and to throw himself on his sword and kill himself just because of the earthquake all right that's our cultural view of this but you have to remember this is the roman empire and this is a very roman city and how does the roman empire maintain their power Lots of threats, lots of codes of honor, lots of expectations. If you fail, act of God or no, depending on which one, it really doesn't matter. Uh, act of God or no, it doesn't matter, you failed. And if you fail, it is your duty to eliminate yourself from the equation. It is your duty to kill yourself because you have failed. So what the jailer does by almost throwing himself on the sword is what would be expected of him that if he had lost all of his prisoners, that would be everybody would show up and say, all right, here's the sword, chop, chop. That was punny, I didn't mean that to be. Uh, that's exactly what would have been expected of him. 
Now, could he have walked into the jail first to make sure nobody was missing? That would have been prudent. But at the same time, human nature dictates, right? Human nature says to us, if they're prisoners and the jail is open, wouldn't you run? Like that just, that seems like self-preservation. That, that seems self-explanatory that all, if you're set free, if you find yourself freed, you'd leave. I know I would be tempted to. But the interesting thing is that Paul and Silas don't. And not only are they still there, did you catch that Paul said, we are all here. So the other prisoners with whom they've been visiting all night haven't left either. That tells us that the time that Paul and Silas have spent with them, that little bit of time those, has been enough for those prisoners to believe in Paul and Silas and what they're saying to begin to believe there's something to this good news they're sharing with us. And we'll believe them. If they tell us not to go, we won't go. And so they're still there, and they spared the jailer's life. In my mind, I think of Paul viewing it as one person already died for his freedom. He didn't need another person to. And so he says, we're all here. You don't need to kill yourself. And of course, this marks a turning point for the jailer. Interesting, it's not the... It's not the um, miracle of the girl being set free from the spirit. It's not the sudden appearance of um, earthquake that opens the doors and loosens the chains. Um, but it's going in and having his own life spared. Ah, well, he is, we're all a little selfish, right? And so you saved my life. I guess I better listen to what you have to say. That's his conversion point, right? That's the moment when he wants to know what Paul and Silas are about. So he takes them home and he cleans their wound. This is notable because, remember, Paul and Silas were beaten before they were put in their chains. The, part, the rest of the story that we don't have in our selection for today, the rest of that chapter in Acts, lets us know that the magistrates the next morning send uh, prison guards, send some more police officers to the jailer's home to let them know that Paul and Silas are set free. Who knows why they decided to do this? Maybe the owners of the servant girl just decided that it wasn't worth a couple of Jews. Just send them on home. They're foreigners. Send them packing. Uh, return to where they came from, and we just won't worry about it anymore. And Paul's ego starts to come out here. This is, this is the fun part about Paul. Paul gets a little egotistical, but it's important. I'm glad he does. Because when the police officers come to say you're set free, he says, well... Tell the magistrate to come. Tell me himself. <laughs> and this is the important part. For we are Roman citizens. This is where we learn that Paul is Roman. We are Roman citizens. Ooh. They're not just foreign Jews. You see, we had written them off as someone other than ourselves. And as it turns out, they're two of our own. Uh-oh. And so the magistrate then does come himself and lets them know that they are free to go. Now, interesting, the magistrate never has a point of conversion. The only thing that matters to him is the empire. So he doesn't care anything about the justice of the situation for Paul and Silas. He doesn't care about the miracles. Who cares about whatever gospel they're peddling? But I don't want to get in trouble with the empire because if I have treated two of our own citizens poorly, then I get in trouble. Nobody cares about anyone else. But if they're citizens, then we've got a problem. The magistrate, we never hear of his conversion. Mm. So this is the thread. 
the lowest, most unimportant, most powerless of the story is the first one to recognize who Paul and Silas are, the servant girl. She has no power. She doesn't control her own life, where she goes, what she does. She doesn't even have power over her own body because the Spirit dictates what she says. Do you see how powerless she is? She doesn't even have the ability to hold her tongue because the Spirit is going to push her hard enough to proclaim. She is the most powerless one in the story, and she is the first to say, look at these two men and listen to what they have to say. And she does it for days. The most powerless is the first. The second, the second most powerless. The second most powerless in the story are the second to recognize the power that Paul and Silas have given to them by God, the prisoners. They don't have control over their own bodies. They don't have control over their own future because they are in prison. They are powerless. And yet, they're the second group to recognize the power of Paul and Silas and the word that they're bringing. Now we're working our way up to middle management. The jailer has some power and authority imbued in him by the, by the great empire, uh, but he's still kind of lowly in it. You know, a jailer, that's not very high on the totem pole. Uh, but still, he's not quite ready to accept and listen, not until it has to do with saving his own skin, right? Because he doesn't care. You talk to those lowly people all you want. Who cares about them? Oh, but you saved my life from myself. Now I'm going to listen. The magistrate, the most powerful of all, he doesn't see it ever. He doesn't see it ever. This is important for us. This is important because it reminds us just how much power blinds us. Right? I'll tell you, this is true of the church. It's true of government. It's true of nonprofit organizations. It's true of, of corporations. It's true of any man made structure that involves power. The more we have, the less we see of the kingdom of God. If I want to encounter a group of people that see clearly the kingdom of God, I'm not walking into my bishop's office. I'm not walking into our state legislature. I'm not going to go see Congress. I'm not going to walk and visit with the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. I will, however, go to camp and hang out with a bunch of kids. I will go to Lee Arendelle Prison and see the women there who are studying theology and are, are on fire. They understand more about the gospel than just about anybody I know. We have an Episcopal ministry there that's amazing. If you ever want to get involved with it, let me know. But there's a reason Jesus said, the least of these are the greatest. You know? If we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand our own blindnesses first, right? We have to understand how any power we have tends to veil our sight. 
And we need to spend some time around those who are powerless. A very powerful moment for me in ministry, there are many, but I remember when I was working in Virginia, I had a parishioner who was a uh, um, probation officer, but for the juvenile system. So he worked all with kids 16 and under. And he came to me one day and he said he was troubled. Um, and I asked him what about, and he broke down into tears, and he said he had a young man who had been in and out of the system that he now was taking care of as his officer, and his mama, the young man's mama, brought him all the time uh, to see him for his visits to check in with his probation officer. And he said, I don't understand, Mary. Every time I ask his mama how she's doing, she just smiles and says, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. And I don't understand it. And he was crying. Because he said, I want that more than anything. I want to feel what she feels. I want to understand what that feels like. Because I have so much more than she does. But there's a big difference between understanding whose power you reside under. The difference between that and by whose authority you actually live. There's a difference whose power you reside under, versus under whose authority you actually live. So my, may we move forward. May we reach out to the least of these, not under only some obligation to care for those who have less than we do, but because by meeting them, by encountering them, by spending a little bit of time, Maybe, just maybe, they'll share a little bit of their sight with us. Jesus wasn't wrong when he talked about the least of these. Amen.